Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. Now, as energy becomes more expensive and fuel sources run out, there's one sustainable solution that's often overlooked, and it's literally right under our noses sometimes, and boy, can you smell it. This week we'll be talking about an innovative way to get some power from farms, along with how to create your own magnetic personality or magnet out of non-magnetic materials. So when I think of power, you know, there's lots of um, talk in the media at the moment about different ways of providing ourselves with electricity. You know, we're all trying to convince each other to go solar powered and put solar panels on our roofs and stuff. When you go driving through um, the Australian outback, you know, you see those farm, those wind farms um, all spinning around, all looking very, very strange. And also, of course, we've got our wonderful solar power because, you know, we're a sunburnt country and using solar power makes a lot of sun sense. And we sometimes have this hydropower as well that exists, isn't there? Yes, they, the Snowy Hydro Scheme, one of the biggest hydro schemes built in the 1960s post-war and brought a lot of migrants across from post-war Europe to Australia. Well, Justin... I hear you have a new source of power for me today. Yes. Well, it's not quite as glamorous as a spinning majestic wind turbine, nor is it as stellar as solar power. In fact, it's a bit more down-to-earth and is downright disgusting, for want of a better word. It's... Let's be honest here. There's no There's no way to go around this. We're talking about biogas here, biogas recovery. So... We're talking about poo. Look, we're talking about the gas produced by cow poo and other waste. Okay, so we're not talking human. Ex- well, ex- not exclusively, no. But <laughs> that's that wouldn't necessarily be a, a limiting factor either. Okay, Justin, how how are we going to do anything here? What what are we doing? And look, this may seem like a silly concept and really, like, manure is a huge, huge, smelly problem for most farms. Like, they have to collect it. I mean, they can't just, like, leave it lying around when you have, like, a thousand cows. So you, you, you basically put it all in one place. And, and generally what they used to do is they used to build, build a big lagoon full of cow manure. And that was great because it sort of all just runs off into one place and that's fine. But... The na- the neighbours don't really like that. That couldn't be good for the environment either, would it? Well, no, because it tends to actually release a lot of methane and carbon dioxide, which, as we know, are major contributors to climate change. So the the challenge is, you know, how do you make the best of a smelly situation like this? You've got all this manure. I mean, you can sell a bit of it as fertiliser, which is great, but it doesn't really solve the problem, specifically those gases that they give off. And you definitely don't want them leaching into the groundwater and corrupting that as well. So what do we do instead? Well, we build what they refer to as an anaerobic digester. Effectively, it's it's a giant shed that uses heat to speed up the decom- decomposition and captures both the smell and greenhouse gases and then does something quite ingenious with it. I'm very curious about what the ingenious thing is. Also, I would never want to work there. <laughs> Well, look, it's not necessarily the most glamorous of places, but it can produce power. A typical one for a small farm, uh, like a a small family-run farm in America, can produce power for a 1,000 homes 
from just their livestock from this small cow farm. Well, that's going to make you more popular with the neighbours. Well, it's certainly cutting down on the toxic smell that's sort of, not toxic, but dangerous and annoying smell that's leaking out, and it's definitely saving the environment. Plus, it's giving you electricity from a renewable source. In fact, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States estimates that more, more than 3 million tonnes of greenhouse gas were eliminated last year simply by moving to biogas reclamation facilities and converting it into power. That's like taking 630,000 cars off the road. So how does the process actually occur? It's, it's a really fascinating process, and, it, and it's something that's not just limited to cow farms. Like we talked about before, you could apply this to wastewater treatment plants, sewerage treatment plants, human sewerage, not cow sewerage, um, as well as landfills, and even at craft beer companies, you can apply the same process at the same thing. All we're trying to do is basically fully enclose this lagoon full of waste, heat it up, and we use the full enclosure to be like a greenhouse, so it actually adds that little bit of extra heat, which serves the purposes of speeding up the decomposition. The faster it decomposes, the more gas it produces, as long as we have big tanks that suck out all the gas from this really tightly enclosed space, we can capture it all. Once we capture it, we burn it. Just like we burn natural gas or petrol, for want of a better word, and we capture the energy produced by that. So what you actually get out of this is you know, enough to power thousands of homes, reduce the the carbon impact and the greenhouse gas impact of thousands of farms, make them not only neutral but net positive contributors and helping to save the planet. So if we've discovered this amazing um, biofuel technology, why haven't we used it yet? Well, the problem is that, you know, it's expensive to build a really big digester. It's a huge upfront cost that's generally out of the realm of imagination for farmers who are just struggling to get by. And then it's also a lot of money to maintain it. But recent government grants and programs are trying to change that by really incentivizing the, the farmers to actually do it. They estimate that they should be able to recover the cost in five years. So once they make the investment to put this thing in place, it actually will pay for itself in a relatively quick amount of time. It may seem like a lot for a small farm we talked about before. It cost around $6 million, but it pays itself back and starts making a profit in three to five years, which is which is pretty great. Like that's that's a very quick return on investment, and it means not only are you saving money and making money, but you're having less annoying uh, smells for you and your neighbours, and you're saving the planet one step at a time. One cow at a time. You're one cow or human or anything really at a time, because as we all know, everybody poops, and if we can make the best of it, we can make the best of that and help save the planet at the same time. So I've been reading a lot of X-Men recently, and I was just hit again for like the 17th time just how cool Magneto's powers are. I mean, can you imagine just having that like magnetic control over all different types of metal? As well as having a magnetic personality and attracting a lot of people to follow your cause. Yeah, magnet powers would be pretty sweet. I mean, you can love him or you can hate him, but you're going to get one of those true polar emotions from him. Basically, it's it's going to be... 
a simple case of attraction or repulsion, no matter how you look at it. So, Justin, I hear for me today you have one neat trick to alter the magnets of the world. Well, the problem with magnets is that we rely on really rare metals to actually produce magnets. Before we really understood magnetism, we relied on lodestones, these magical things that would turn metals and rocks into attractive things that sort of stuck together, and we were fascinated by this. And then we sort of refined our understanding a bit more, and we, we, we got to understand that there are three real ferromagnetic elements, iron, cobalt, and nickel, and that's great. They're really cool, and we use them a lot. Your phone uses them for memory. Your computer uses them for memory. We use them to help build motors for your cars, your power plants, your fridge, your washing machine. Magnets are everywhere and are doing many things, but they're really only operating from a really small, limited subset. Well, eventually we're going to have to start running out of these elements, right? That's right. And basically, it's very expensive to make these magnets, and we don't really have many metals we can use for it. Yes, there's some of the paramagnetic... Uh, materials which have some of the properties but they're really they're not quite the same as the real ferromagnetisms and they don't retain any magnetism on their own i'm sure you've experienced this when you've got like a, a spoon or something and you sort of stroke a magnet across it and the spoon becomes magnetic for a bit yeah that's cool and then it then it stops being magnetic after a while we we really need those source magnets to sort of power the whole world so magnetism is a huge problem and we've got a really limited resource set that we're playing with okay so we're having issues with we don't have enough magnetic things in our lives. Have we figured out a way to change that? That's right. And so researchers from University of Leeds, who have been digging into this whole problem, have really stumbled onto one key criteria. Um, really, they really like to be able to tailor different types of magnetic systems to each application without having to use these rare or toxic materials. And so they're really limited, but, you know... Just like we experimented with metals when building skyscrapers, and instead of just building stuff out of iron, we added a little carbon and made steel through an alloy, and that was fantastic, and it really helped things out. They're trying to experiment, basically, with the same kind of idea, but for magnetism. And what's holding them back is the criteria which determines whether something is ferromagnetic, the, the magnetism that you kind of recognize. Um, and it's a criteria called the stoner criterion. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say the stoner criterion? Yeah, that's what makes something defined whether or not it's going to be an attractive ferromagnetic material is the stoner criterion, named after Professor Edmund Clifton Stoner, a theoretical physicist who worked at the University of the Leeds from the 30s to 60s. So not a uh, stereotypical stoner, so to speak. Now, <laughs> what the stoner criterion says is that if you want to have something become magnetic it really you got to look at the distribution of electrons in the atom and the strength of the interaction between them and if you want an element to be ferromagnetic when you multiply the number of different states the electrons allowed to occupy in the orbits so around the kind of the nucleus so electrons sort of orbit in these clouds around the nucleus it's basic sort of particle physics we, we define this with a thing called density of states right and there's some interactions between um in between electrons in these clouds with each other and that's great now, when electrons interact, they have quantum mechanic properties, things like spin, right, like up and down, and that the spin on them and the angular momentum of the interaction between these electrons is what essentially one of the explanations for how magnetism works. When you don't have enough, you don't meet the criteria for that interaction, you don't have a magnetic thing. So it's kind of like a pass-fail test. If there's enough if there's enough spin interaction between these two things, it will pass and it will be magnetic. Otherwise, it won't be. 
So what they found is that we can cheat this test by adding some non-magnetic materials in and remove some of the electrons that are in the way and uh, make it pass the magnetic test. So non-magnetic metals to sort of get over the limit, cheat its way through the, the magnetic test and become ferromagnetic. That sounds pretty cannibal. Um, like intuitive, bring in non-magnetic metals to make something magnetic. That's right. And what they do is they basically take these non-magnetic metals and give them a really thin layer on the interface boundary, but the electrons, of carbon molecule C60, which we commonly call a buckyball. They're, they're really full. Nanotechnologists love buckyballs. You'll hear them thrown around all the time. So but, does Captain America. Yeah, that's right. But they slip these little buckyballs in and suddenly... What was previously a non-magnetic metal passes the stoner criterion and gets called a full-blown ferromagnetic material. So does it um, maintain that ferromagnetity? Yeah, it does. So effectively, once instead of just being a paramagnetic material, which loses its uh, magnetism after a while, it will hold it and retain it. So it becomes just like an irregular, everyday ferromagnetic material. Even though, by all rights, it shouldn't be. You, ch- you can cheat and get it across the line. A case of really faking it until you make it. <laughs> so what does that mean for us? Are we going to start using these fake magnets instead? Well, yeah, we, we, hopefully we'll be able to use these to help solve the magnet crisis. Um, but at the moment, we are not quite there yet. Um, at the moment, the magnets that we can produce using this technique is great. It's working really well, but it's probably not even as strong as the magnets holding your fridge magnets on your fridge. So uh, we're not quite there yet, but with the right combination of elements, we're pretty confident that we will soon be able to produce designer magnetic materials for all kinds of different technologies. Are there any negative effects from these um, creating these fake metals? Well, there isn't really, it just, but it doesn't solve the ultimate problem of consumption, right? We still have to use these metals to sort of get there in the first place. And it may be a bit more energy intensive rather than just finding naturally occurring thing. We have to work really hard to make it, but it's still probably cheaper than finding a really, really rare metal. So it just goes to show that uh, even though you, if at first you don't succeed, if you find the right friends and some buckyballs, you too can achieve your dreams of being really magnetic. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about an innovative solution to generate power utilising waste that's present on all of our farms. Plus, we found out a nice way to actually make magnetism when there's never been magnets before. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.